It seemed like, why would I preach to folks about stuff that's for pastors? But as we have seen, we are all called into some form of Christian leadership. And uh, there has been a lot of valuable, transformational uh, things for us to hear from Scripture. And so we are excited uh, today to continue this. So if you have your Bible, you can take the Bible in the pew in front of you, or you can get it however you choose to get it. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 4, verse 5. So read along with me. Although, this is Paul again, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For God, everything created, I'm sorry, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. This is the Word of God for the people of God, and our response is, thanks be to God. Amen. Well, as we uh, know, this is a continuation from last week. So we're, we're catching the same point, but we're, we're going to look at the rest of the story, so to speak. Last week we had part one, that uh, this understanding that Christian leaders are called to keep the main thing the main thing. And this is very important. And Paul takes us through and, and helps us to see. We Remember we started last week with this long list of behaviors that were expected of leaders, but also that those leaders were to model that so that those people that they were leading would begin to exhibit those same behaviors in their lives. And we saw that behavior is often a good indicator of what we really, deeply, and truly believe. We saw that uh, our behavior flows directly out of our values and our values flow directly out of our identity, who we see ourselves to be. And identity flows right out of our story. And, and, And so this means that our behaviors, the way we operate in our families, in our lives, in our schools, they are a direct result of the story that we find ourselves a part of. And and so out of these things they come. So what is the story that we find ourselves a part of? Well, Paul uses those beautiful three lines of a poem to mess with us, to help us to see that our story, and I'm summarizing those three lines here, that the living Christ fills and is Lord of and holds all things together. That we serve a, a big God. Amen? He holds all things together. 
And we saw that 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 means that He is found in the places where you expect, where angels have seen Him, in the highest heights, in the heavenlies, and in the unexpected places as well, all the way out into the nations, into the different ethnicities, the places where you may not expect God is even there. And He is in all creation to be trusted, and He can take us all the way to glory. He came from God's space into our space and is pulling our space back into God's space and He will even hold all of that together. This is the big God that we serve. This is the story that Paul is inviting us to attach our little stories to. And that means that our identity is that this huge dynamic God has called you out to be a disciple. Remember, we looked at we are called to be the church and the church is that Greek word ekklesia. It means the ones called out by God to join together into this great story that God has. And that means that our values, that, that our value is that in everything, in, in all the places and people that God fills, connects, and loves. In other words, that means everyone and everything. And that means that our behaviors should look like godliness. That's not self-righteousness. That is the loving behaviors of Jesus exhibited in my life, in Deidre's life, in Steve's life, in Paula's life, in Joyce's life, in Steve's life. You see how this works its way out. And we begin to see that when our story is connected, these things begin to grow like good fruit on a good tree. Oh sure, it may take some pruning, it may take some time to grow and see this, but if your story is connected to this story of God, then you will begin to see those behavior patterns eventually take shape and take place in your life, wherever you are called. Now Paul goes on though, and he he says, he, he wants us to begin to look at something that was happening in this specific church, and I think has something to say to us today. He goes on and says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with hot iron. Man, Paul is like pulling no punches. That's pretty rough stuff, isn't it? So I think we need to look into this and and see what Paul is getting at in these these really harsh words. He wants to get their attention. He wants Timothy to know this is a serious, serious matter. So let's look first at abandon the faith. He said that the Spirit said that those will abandon the faith. I want to make it very clear that the faith that he is talking about here is not your view of creation. Because see, sometimes we want to take all of our faith and boil it down into how do you believe the beginning happened? And Paul, Paul is saying it's, it's not about that. Don't, don't, don't take this huge God and make it all about do you believe that it happened in seven 24-hour days? Or do you believe that God started it all and God has seen it happen and transpire over 13.5 billion years? It can be both. It's also not, the faith is not summed up in how you believe it all ends. Whether you believe it's a premillennial or a postmillennial or an amillennial or a panmillennial. You know, I just believe it will all pan out in the end. That's not the whole of our faith. And you can't say someone's abandoning the faith because they believe a little bit differently than you do. Our God is big. And it's not your view of Scripture. 
Not abandoning that you must read it literally word for word the way it is is written in English. (laughs) Because the truth is, your Bible wasn't written in English originally. It was translated many, many times to get you to English. Which is why I spent lots of money to learn how to read it in the original languages. So what is he talking about if it's not these things that we tend to reduce faith down to? Well, more than likely, it was the faith of the truth of the poem that he has already introduced us to. The truth that he would write to the Colossians later and say that Christ holds all things together. This is our faith. That Christ is able to take flesh and spirit, His flesh and spirit, and bring righteousness into the midst of that. And if He could do that, then He could take your flesh and your spirit and merge them together and cause righteousness to come out of your life, out into the world. That He can hold all the things that seem disparate and, and He fills them and He is Lord in those places and He loves those people and He can hold all this together. To abandon the faith, then he he talks about teachings of demons and those kinds of things. And I believe it is demonic to think that there is a place where Jesus is not Lord. Let me say that again. That needs to mess with you. It needs to mess with me. It is demonic to think that there is a place where Jesus is not Lord, where His sanctifying love cannot transform and is not at work in the world. It is demonic to think that there is a person that Jesus does not love, that Jesus did not die for, and whose Jesus' resurrecting power cannot transform their life. At best, it leads to bigotry and racism if we hold that there's a person Jesus doesn't love. At worst, it leads to murder and genocide and holocaust. We are called to believe in a God who holds all things together. It's not a small God, but a large God who can hold even your tension and your life in His hands. He calls out some hypocritical liars. I thought, man, I want to know what that really means. I want to look at those words. And so the word hypocrite, uh, I know you want to say that. Uh, you can say that at another time. Hypocrite is hypocrite. But it really means an actor. It's somebody who's acting. It's somebody who's hiding behind a mask. They're putting the mask out there that this is what I want you to see. This is I want you to think I'm really good and I'm really awesome and all these kinds of things. But behind it, I have a lot of fears and doubts and I have a lot of anger and I have a lot of unmet needs and all those kinds of things, but I don't want want you to see this. He's saying, so these teachers are putting on a mask. They're not even being real in their teaching. And the word for liars is pseudo-legeo. That's a fun one to say. So I I thought we could say that one, right? Okay, ready? One, two, three. Pseudo-legeo. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. Pseudo-legeo. Pseudo means what? False. Logeo means word. False words. Now this is interesting because as I was looking that up in the Bible Dictionary of the New Testament, it said that someone who does pseudo-logeo is properly a person passing on false conclusions because they are working from false premises. Okay? 
Calling someone a liar seems like quite a label. Saying that someone might come to a false or pass on a false conclusion because they're working from false premises seems a little better. I'll give you an example of this because lately I've been having to work with Jackson on his math homework and many of you know how much I love math. And I've noticed uh, sometimes they, they put out uh, problems and there's a number and then the symbol of what you're supposed to do and then another number and it's out this way. Now, these eyes, and maybe it's time for a new, glass, new glasses, sometimes get confused between a plus sign and a division sign. Now, if it's a plus sign, but I see it as a division sign and I do that, what happens? I am pseudo-legato. <laughs> I am someone who's going to come to a false conclusion because I'm working from a false premises. Does this make sense to you? Because we can do this a lot. This can happen in our lives. And so Paul is saying that these, these folks who are, who are teaching this demonic thing, that, that there's a place where God is not Lord, that there's a place where there's a human, there are human beings that Jesus does not love and did not die for and cannot transform, they're, they're working from a false premises. He goes on and says, because their consciences are seared. Now, some of you are nurses and you know that sometimes the only way to save someone is to cauterize a wound. That means you seal it off with something super hot. It does stop the bleeding, but it also leaves a lot of scar tissue, doesn't it? And sometimes it's so deep that you can't even feel anything in that place anymore. And Paul is saying that these false pretenses that lead to false conclusions that are being passed on may be because someone's life circumstances have so injured them that they start, they can't feel, they've cauterized that area of their life and they start uh, from a false premise and therefore reach false conclusions. I don't believe Paul ever dehumanized someone. I think when we begin to read this, we begin to see that Paul was saying something very important here. That it was time for, yes, correction, but to realize that these teachings that are going out is because someone is starting from a false premise. It's leading to false conclusions. It's getting out there. And there may be something that has happened in their life that had caused them to start from a false place. Now, let's look at the cult. That means we have to look at the culture that was going on in that little Ephesian church. There was a culture of Artemis worship and Diana worship, and that included a lot of, um, well, sacred um, prostitutes. So have fun with that in the minivan on Family Sunday. Discussing that one. But there was a lot of sexuality that was used in that type of thing. And it was used in in improper ways. And so what would begin to happen when you merge that with a Greek philosophy, a mindset that was just in Greek culture in those day and age, that said anything to do with your body or flesh was bad. You merge those together and you get this teaching that says... Oh, well, that means that God doesn't want anybody to get married. Let's keep those bodies apart, okay? Let's not have anything to do. Let's not, let's not get married. Let's not put them in places where, where those bodies can come in contact with each other. Is that okay to say? You see how this starts from a false premise and leads to a false conclusion. Or there were Jewish dietary restrictions that were a part of the law that were set up here and there and, and it was a part in some ways of 
making sure that God's people were a little distinct from the other cultures that were around. Some of it probably had to do with just purity. It was hard to clean those animals. There was sickness that could come through those, those things into the culture. But whatever it was, they brought this over and they had been so steeped in that culture that to hear Jesus holds all things together and all things are clean is tough. And it's, it's, it's tough. And so they would begin to teach, so you can eat that food, but not that food. This one's okay. That one's not okay. Do you see how you might start from a false premise and it might lead to a false conclusion? Well, the truth is, is that we have this culture still in our day, don't we? I mean, we have sexual wounding. As I worked as a counselor, I encountered many, many people who had been abused and, and had had such a struggle with the fact that they had been abused in this way, that they wanted to back off from that even after they were married. There was still just this struggle with that. There's, there's body shaming that goes on if you don't match up. Uh, women with who's on the, the swimsuit issue or guys in the, the bodybuilding issue. I know I do, but, you know, others. You begin to think, well, this isn't good or this isn't enough and... You may start hiding yourself. There are, there are others, other ways that this happens. There's substance abuse, both of things that we would think, oh, well, that's a slippery slope, or other things like food, which are really good, but can become a substance that is abused, and therefore we might even push off saying that even food is good. And then even religious abuse. There are some people who have been so abused by people who claim to follow Jesus that they just throw out and say, all religion is bad. It's not that they're just hostile, terrible atheists. But most atheists that I've met are reacting against, they are starting from a false premise and ending up in false conclusions. Do you see how this works? So what is the remedy for this. What is Paul calling Timothy to do? It's, it's really that he needs to bring them back to the main thing. The God who can hold all things together. The God that he would write about in first, as he's going on. That, that God who can take marriage and food and who created all these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth for everything. Everybody say everything. Everything God created is what? Good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. What does this mean? It means that the remedy for misuse is not no use, but correct use. Let me say that again. I want to take out a picture and take a picture of the screen. The remedy for misusage of something is not no usage but it's correct usage. It's correct usage. When we get that right, when there's correct usage of marriage, or when there's correct use of human sexuality, or when there's correct use of food, whatever that food might be, it is then restored when it is correct use and you begin to see the goodness of it. And you can then begin to receive that with thanksgiving. The word for thanksgiving is the word Eucharisto. Uh, say Eucharisto. Ready? One, two, three. 
comes from two words, you, which means good, like euangelion, we translate good news or the gospel. You means good, charis means gift. It means that when you receive something with thanksgiving, you are saying by your actions and sometimes with your words, this is a good gift. When I held my son for the first time in my arms, and he fit right here, now he won't fit here. I could look and in holding him and the feelings that were welling up inside, I could look and I could receive his little wriggly flesh as good gift. It's Thanksgiving. God, this is a good gift. And I'm so grateful for it. Paul begins to say that we, when we receive food with thanksgiving, we are to see whatever comes our way, whatever food happens. No matter if you think it falls into a bad category or a good category, when we receive it, we are to receive it as this could be with its proper use such a good gift. And I receive it with thanksgiving. And there's something that, it, that is in there that we can receive all things as a good gift because why? Because God created it. And that is the reason. He goes on and he says, because these things, all things, can be consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. Don't let that word consecrated fall, uh, throw you. It's just a fancy way of saying that something specific was set apart for God's specific purpose. It was set apart so that God could use it in some way. Did you know that your life was called to be consecrated? Think about this. Were you created by God? Yes. So you are a gift. And you were created by God, and because God has created you, God has consecrated you. He has set you aside, and He has purpose for you. He says that this, these things, all things, are consecrated, are set aside by what? By the Word of God, first of all. That's not the Bible that Paul is talking about. Now, that's okay. The Bible does tell us about correct usage of certain things, how to receive things. It teaches us how to receive our lives, how to live our lives in connection with God and with others. So, in, in a way, it could be that way. But what he's really talking about is the living Word of God. Who's the living Word of God? Jesus. And Jesus comes to your life. And He can, if you will, receive with thanksgiving. Good gift. He can consecrate your life. And with prayer. Prayer is there. I know sometimes we think of it as a genie list. Like, uh, you know, God give me this. God help me here. God give me... And that's, that's okay. But truly the purpose of prayer is to align our hearts with the heart of Jesus. So look at this. It's how it works backwards. Prayer then aligns our hearts with the heart of Jesus. And this reminds us that He has consecrated all things. And then that leads to us receiving our lives as good gifts. The question is, do you see your life as good gift? All parts of it? 
I want to share with you, some of you have heard this good news already. But Lori starts work tomorrow. (laughs) And we're excited about that. It seems good. She's going to be working for uh, Michigan Department of Human Resources and something. Talk to her. Yeah. It's a nonprofit, and she'll be working uh, in helping people find employment. A couple days a week, she'll be 10 minutes down the road from our house. In a couple days, she'll be helping folks in a rural community down in Three Rivers, which is what her training and degree is, is all about. And so she's exciting. It's, it's been good. We can definitely look at that and say, Eucharisto! Good gift! Thanksgiving. But when we begin to see that the God we serve is the God that holds all things together, we can even look back and say, you know what? From this time where we found out she was losing her job, and when that job ended and there wasn't another one to start right away, we have seen the faithfulness of God through those who have given to us by surprises like an incredible amount of money for singing a song, to those who have blessed and listened to God in giving, through seeing our finances and just learning that we were spending way too much money on coffee and we could actually live without it, that we could look at even the difficult circumstances and declare good gift. We learned something about this God in the midst of the difficulties. That this God truly is the one who can hold all things together. Including the things that seem so disparate. He can hold even that together. Can you receive your life as a good gift? Do you need to be reminded of the main thing? Well, that's why we're going to come to the table. That's why we're going to receive bread and cup. And why every time we do this, I remind you that God takes ordinary things like a little bit of bread, and if you need it, gluten-free bread. And a little bit of grape juice. And somehow, He consecrates that. He sets it apart. He says it's a good gift for you. It is Eucharist. That's why some traditions call this meal the Eucharist. Why? Because you're supposed to receive it as good gift. And somehow, as God uses this regular, ordinary bread and cup, He somehow puts His Spirit in it and it it moves into our lives. And we then become eventually what we eat. And we begin to realize that you, your life is called to be a good gift to your neighbors, to your workmates, to your classmates, to your schools, to your families. You take some. It shows you and reminds you that if God can take bread and cup, what could He do with a whole human body that is good? To show His love out into our world. And so we say on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He took cup. He broke the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. This is my blood shed for you, poured out for you. Take and drink. In just a moment, you're going to be called to the table.
I want you to know you are welcome to come. In our tradition, we practice open communion. This is all this means. It means that if this is your first time here and you're a part of a different tradition in the Christian faith, you are welcome to come to the table. Don't let that stop you. We place no barriers. The other thing we believe is that God calls people who are hungry to the table. And if you are hungry for the God who is so vast that He can hold even your life together, If you're hungry for that kind of God, you are welcome to come. Even if it's your first day here, just do me a favor. Let me know it was your first time to take communion. Because I would love, I would love to celebrate with you and let you know more about this incredible God who can hold our lives together and return them to us as good gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bread and for cup. We thank You that You can take the ordinary and do extraordinary things with it. We're grateful that You long and can take our lives and make them into good gift for those around us. That You can hold together even the parts of our lives that were difficult. And You can sustain us and help us. So help us Connect our stories to Your vast, huge story. And bring us to be good gift to those around us. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Behold, the Eucharist, good gift of God for your life. And when we eat and when we drink, remember, God looks at you and us and says, Behold, Eucharist, my good gift out into the world. Go and share in His love. Behold the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat this good gift with thanksgiving. Behold the blood of Christ, shed for you to hold all things together. Take and drink with thanksgiving. Lord Jesus, we thank You for these good gifts. May they remind us that we are called to be good gifts, Eucharist out into our world. Bless those around us through us as we show the loving behaviors of Jesus to those around us. Connect our stories. Change our identities. Shape our values. That we might see the fruit of godliness in our world. For we pray and ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And everyone said, Amen. Would you stand and receive the final blessing? I'm going to invite you to take these cups with you. Put them somewhere where they are visible. And as you see this empty cup, may you realize that you are called to be Eucharist, to be good gift to those around you. May it shape you and change you. And help you to see yourself. And now, may God bless you and keep you. May God make His face to shine upon you. May God help you and sustain you. May God give you what you need. And may you receive it with thanksgiving, with Eucharist, declaring it as good gift. And may you over time realize that you are that good gift. And may you be that gift to those around you. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
one God forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.